We're continuing in our series, our summer series, Christ Encounters, and we have spent several weeks talking about the called, uh, those great and also unlikely men that Jesus called to himself uh, to be his apostles, that he used in great ways, and so we've spent a lot of time looking at their call, uh, the call to himself and those personal encounters that he had with them. And now we're moving ahead from that category into the next category of personal encounters that Jesus had, uh, individuals that we want to zero in on with a different category, and that's the sinners. We're going to be talking about the sinners now and that category of personal encounters that Jesus had. And certainly we will be able to draw much, much application from these encounters considering that, well, we're all sinners, And so certainly we can draw application and encouragement from these encounters that we look at as we go forward in this series. There is a category of modern art that has been around for a long time, but it's kind of growing. There's a growing trend in the the recent years towards this type of art, and it's called trash art trash art. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you've heard it, and there's probably other categories of art that you would consider trash art that isn't trash art, but this is one that is actually supposed to be trash art because it's made from trash, Uh, and it's, it's what people do. I mean, there's just a lot of different examples of trash art where people take what others have discarded and and don't want or need anymore, and they've made something unique or, or beautiful out of it and they've made a masterpiece out of it. It extends to the music world, too. There's a a pretty familiar story of a South American man, a guy from Paraguay, who went into the slums, and there was an entire community that was living uh, around the, the trash heaps and the dumps there in Paraguay, and just total poverty. And he decided to do something similar to what the trash art seeks to do, he went into these, these villages and these communities where none of the children had exposure to fine arts or music lessons, and even if they could attend lessons, there was no way they could have ever afforded musical instruments. So what he did, he gathered all sorts of different trash and made musical instruments out of them. Long story short, this group of children and teenagers and young adults that live in this particular area in Paraguay learned music, became just expert musicians, and ended up traveling all over the world. I think they still tour. It's a full orchestra that uses nothing but discarded trash turned into musical instruments, uh, and they just they make incredible music out of that. So what others have decided is trash. Some have decided to make masterpieces out of that and beautiful things. It's an incredible, incredible thing what people can do with that. And so keep that concept in mind. Trash art or the musical instruments that were made from trash that end up making music uh, that is just incredible from that. Keep that in mind as we begin this category of personal encounters, the sinner's And especially keep that in mind as we look at that first encounter under this category today, the woman at the well. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be, so I invite you to look at that with me in your copy of God's Word. John chapter 4, as we start this next 
category of encounters, the sinners, and none that we will look at fits this category or exemplifies this category so well as this individual, the woman at the well. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, God's Word says this, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard He was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus Himself was not baptizing, but His disciples were, When he heard that, verse 3, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, Probably a lot of you know some detail about the Middle East, and and that is that noon was the very, very hottest part of the day. It's the time when people went indoors, they stopped their work, they didn't socialize outside. I mean, they they were inside in the cool and the shade until the hottest part of the day passed. But here he is at noon at this well, and there's something very specific about the reason why the person that comes along next comes at that time. We'll get there. But just, just keep in mind that noon hour and the unlikeliness of this encounter because of it being the hottest part of the day. This encounter, by normal example, a normal rites, a normal occurrence, should not have happened, but it did. It was very intentional. Verse 7, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Came at noon. Unlikely. Unusual came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Verse 9, here's the response to that request. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, most of you have heard this story enough. You've heard messages on this enough. You've probably even done a little bit of Bible study on this to know that this is not something that was limited to this woman and Jesus and and her being surprised that Jesus was talking to her and wanting to associate with her. It wasn't unique. It was something that was true of of all, just about all Jewish people and all Samaritan people. They just didn't get along. They didn't connect. There was a big barrier between them. But I want to make sure you understand why. The reason for that was really twofold. One was a cultural reason. The other was a religious reason. And together they made for a huge, huge barrier that was between the two people groups. Even though they were a lot more connected than they might want to think about. The cultural reason is that when most of the Jews were carried away for the Babylonian captivity, which happened a long, long time before this this time period that we're reading about, but when most of the Jews were taken away to Babylon, there were still several families and groups of people that were left behind. And when that happened, they began to intermarry with the other groups around them. So think of like... uh, the Canaanites, the Moabites, all those ites, you know, 
that are in the, uh, the Old Testament that God again and again says, don't intermarry with these people. If you do, trouble will happen, bad things will happen because they will take your heart from me. You'll follow the gods that they follow and worship, so you need to not intermarry with them. It wasn't because God is some sort of cosmic racist. That wasn't what it was about. It was about Him protecting His people. It was about Him keeping them pure, right? So, sure enough, though, what happened those people that stayed behind over the years, over the decades, they began drifting away, intermingling, intermarrying. And so not only did you have a, a cultural anomaly now, you had half Jewish, half whatever. So there was this hybrid of people culturally. And then you had some demographic differences. But as God warned, sure enough, you ended up having religious disparity and so you had this group of people living in the samaria region that began mixing the pagan religions of all those ites canaanites amorites moabites all those people mixing them with the religion of israel the the worship of the one true god yahweh so you had judaism mingled and mixed and compromised with all these other religions, and all these other pursuits of worship that weren't sincere worship. Sounds a little familiar, right? At least it should. History has a way of repeating itself, and we don't really learn much from history. That's another message, though, for another time. But that's the reason, really, that you see behind this animosity and behind this isolation and separation. And that was very, very much intact. It was so much that... Jewish people looked down on Samaritans so much that they were even worse than the type of people that we talked about last week in our series, if you were here or if you heard that message, if you missed it, the tax collectors. Boo! Tax collectors. Well, as bad as tax collectors were to the Jewish person, Samaritans were even worse. They were the lowest of the low. I mean, you had, in the caste system of the day, you had shepherds, you had tax collectors, and then you had Samaritans way down at the bottom. So much was the hatred and the fact that they looked down on this people group that they actually connected Samaritans with those that were demon-possessed. Like if, if you, someone was thought to have a demon, they were called a Samaritan. And that's how bad it was. So it's with this cultural and socioeconomic and religious barrier that Jesus intentionally engages this woman. That right there should be astounding. I mean, don't you see how amazing that is? And she was amazed by that. Because she says, instead of just answering him, oh sure, no problem, I'll get you a drink. She can't even believe what's happening. She says, wait a second. Do you know who you are? What you are? Do you know what I am? Why are you, a Jewish man, even talking to me? How is it that you ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? This doesn't happen. Verse 10, And Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, which, by the way, that's the gift of God. He is the gift of God. That's what He's saying. If you knew that, if you understood that, you would ask Him... And 
he would give you living water. So he's talking about himself, and, and he says, if you knew what was going on right now, if you knew who it was talking to you, if you knew the gift of God that was before you and available to you, you would ask me to give you living water. That would be what was coming out of your mouth. Not, not this amazement that I'm talking to you, amazement that you could have this living water that I can provide. And she's, she's focused now on, on that statement, the statement about she would ask him to give her this living water. Verse 11, Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? And, and maybe it's just me because I'm kind of a um, sarcastic individual by nature. Like, I have to really watch that. I, I can be really sarcastic. And so I identify with sarcasm. But I just see that as being how she said that. I, I don't know. Maybe not. I just hear that. Like, oh, okay. Living water? Really? You don't even have a bucket, dude. Where are you going to get this? This living water. And then verse 12. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? And man, she, she would uh, eat those words here in just a little bit when she realizes how true that is. Um, and I, I just wish that Jesus in that moment would have said, well, actually, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm quite a bit greater, actually, than Jacob. We don't see that recorded, and apparently that didn't happen. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from him himself, as did his sons and livestock. And right there, I mean, in that statement, we see that there really should have been a lot more connection than there was. There was no reason really for such division and animosity and bias with these two people groups. I mean, Jacob was their father, their ancestor, as he was the Jewish people. He was the father of, of the Jewish nation. His name was changed to Israel, for crying out loud. And, and that's where Israel came from. And yet, he also was the, the common ancestor for the Samaritans as well. And yet, there's all this division, all this focus on what they don't have in common as opposed to all that they do. But let's keep going. Verse 13, And Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water, and you know, just kind of pointing to the well, the water at the well, everyone that drinks from this water here will get thirsty again. And let me just stop here in this, in this verse 13 right at this point and just make it personal. Because this presents a question and a, a problem, a dilemma, a reality that every single one of us is faced with and has to come to terms with. And that's this. What well do you keep returning to? What's the well you keep running back to to find the satisfaction of your thirst? What, what water source are you continually drinking from? And the way we answer that answers the question of, for many of us, why am I still so empty in my life? Why do I still feel so unfulfilled? I mean, and that's a question millions and millions of people ask every day of their life, right? Why do I not have this 
This feeling of emptiness met, no matter what I try to do, no matter where I look, no matter where I turn, I just can't seem to get satisfaction. Like the Rolling Stones song. You know, can't get no satisfaction. That's the song, the anthem of millions and millions and millions of people. I try and I try and I can't get fulfilled. I look for satisfaction and meaning and purpose and I come up dry. I come up empty. Maybe even you as a believer are plagued with that from time to time. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're immune from that feeling of longing and and not having it met or that feeling of being dry spiritually or empty. And so if you ask that question, or, or for anyone who does, a good indicator of why we feel empty and not fulfilled in our life is because of what we're looking to or running to to try to find that fulfillment. Friends, if, we, if we're looking to any other source but Jesus Himself, for fulfillment, for meaning, for satisfaction, for purpose, we're going to come up empty. We're going to keep getting thirsty again. And so I ask you again, what well do you keep returning to in your life? What source are you personally, continually drinking from? It's a question we have to all ask and really Continue to ask. Continue to ask that question. No matter how long you've walked with the Lord and how much you know of the Bible, we need to keep that question before us every single day. I mean, moment by moment. Like, in this moment, what well am I running to? In this moment, what source of water am I trying to be nourished from? Is it Jesus? Or is it anything else? Something else. It's good to keep in mind. Now, Let's keep going in this narrative, in this encounter. Verse 14, so he just got done saying, everyone who drinks from this water, the physical water right here, will get thirsty again. And notice this contrast. It's beautiful and it's so important. Verse 14, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water. Isn't Jesus just brilliant in what He does? Those connections. The water I will give Him will become a well of water springing up in Him for eternal life. What Jesus told her is what He's telling us and wants us to hear. Just as important as it was for this woman to hear what he was really saying in that statement, it's important for us to hear and remember, and that's this. Jesus is the only source of lasting satisfaction. Jesus is the only source of lasting satisfaction. There's all sorts of sources of some satisfaction out there in the world and in life. So, Notice I, I didn't say he's the only source of satisfaction because there's, there's all kinds of sources of satisfaction, but all other sources, hear me on this, all other sources are temporary satisfaction. Jesus is the only source of lasting, permanent satisfaction. We need to keep that distinction in mind. 
Because in that distinction is everything. It's everything. All our looking, which we all do, all our longing for fulfillment that we all want, it's all found in Him and Him alone. Do you agree with that? It's all found in Him alone. So here's this incredible statement that he gives. This comparison to the physical water and to the water he provides and the difference that that is. And then just notice her response to that. Verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. And and don't miss this part, this next part. This is a, a huge clue as to what's going on in her life and why she's coming here at noon to this well when no one else is there. Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here or, or have to come here to draw water. Hmm. Verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. Verse 17. I don't have a husband. She answered. Don't you see the cheeks reddening as she says that? Don't you see her getting a little, little shamed, maybe dropping her head as she says that? I, I, don't, I don't have a husband, she answered. Here's Jesus' response. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. Verse 18, for you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What? I mean, this is where you'd insert, you know, on our phones you have the emojis. This is where you'd insert that emoji with the big eyes and the blushing cheeks or the the mind-blown emoji, you know, where the head's exploding, right? That's, that's how she would be reacting at this moment. We know she's reacting in that way because of how she responds, which we'll get to in a minute. But I mean, this would have been like jaw drop, eyes wide. Uh, uh, uh. I mean, he, he zeroed in, he narrowed in on the scandalous nature of the woman that was before him. This would have been unimaginably scandalous in this day and age. I mean, to have more than one husband, it's not like she lost all these husbands to death. That's not what's implied here. What's implied is that she left all these other husbands. That there was divorce after divorce after divorce. And that because of all her failed marriages, she decided marriage isn't going to work anymore for me. I still want companionship. I still need a man in my life, especially, again, remember the day and age and how dependent women were on men in this culture in this time. So she says, you know, marriage obviously hasn't fulfilled me. I haven't found what I've been looking for in marriage. So I I think I'm just going to shack up for a while. I'm not going to get married anymore. Marriage isn't going to work, but I still need a man. So I'll just try living with one and see how that works. You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. Scandal, tragedy, heartache, heartbreak, looked down on. I mean, as, as looked down on as the Samaritans were by the Jewish people, think about how looked down this woman was by her own people. 
No wonder she's coming to the well at noon when no one else is there, right? You get that now. We see that. Of course she's coming at noon. Of course she is. Because she's tired of all the all the whispering, all the pointing, all the stares, all the mm-mm, right? She's tired of it. She doesn't want any more of that. She's had enough of it. So she's coming when she knows nobody's there. And so now she's really excited at the prospect of not having to come and draw water in the middle of town, which is where this would have been, any longer. What's your scarlet letter? We all have one of some type. We all have that thing that we hope not everybody finds out about that was in our past. And praise the Lord. I mean, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're a new creature. Behold, the old is gone and all things are new. Praise Him for that. But there's still those things that come up that we remember that are in our past that we hope nobody else ever finds out about that still, even though we know we've been forgiven for them and redeemed from them, they still bring us shame when we think about it. Or maybe, maybe you're here and you've never actually given all of that area in your heart to the Lord Jesus and you're still carrying that around. I don't know, but every human being has some sort of baggage that they're carrying around. Maybe it's not uh, the relationship that's improper between a man and a woman. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's, it's overeating. Maybe it's, it's some sort of addiction. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's, it's neglecting your family. I, I don't know. I mean, you fill in the blank. But this woman has been looking for fulfillment in relationships, and it never came. And it only left her broken, and it only left her empty, and it left her wallowing in the mire of her sinfulness without anybody to do anything about it. Do you see her situation? And maybe that's where the Lord found you. Maybe that's your story and your past. And if it's not yours, it's someone else's. We can all somehow identify with where this woman is. And so what Jesus is doing here what he's demonstrating isn't just beautiful for this woman. It wasn't just music to her ears. It should be beautiful to all of us. It should be music to all of our ears because here's what we see Jesus doing here. Here's what we see true of him and this encounter with this woman. It's this. Jesus always accepted the sinner, but he also addressed their sin. And that is so important to keep in mind. That's so important to understand. Jesus always accepted the sinner, but He also addressed their sin. Our culture, our society, even in the church, is just increasingly obsessed with this notion of not calling out sin in other people's lives. Don't judge me. Don't be judgmental. Don't force your truth on someone else, right? That's the message of our day. Uh, and, and again, even in the church. But what we, we misunderstand, and well, before I get to what we misunderstand, they even will use Jesus as an example. Remember, I, I talked about earlier in the series about uh, our need 
often to deconstruct the image of Jesus that we've constructed in our mind. Maybe you remember that, maybe you don't, but I, but I said that, okay? Uh, earlier in our series, I said that sometimes we need to deconstruct what we've built up about Jesus because it's not the real Jesus. Well, anytime people pull the, the no judgment card and they use Jesus as an example of that, they're misunderstanding, I mean fundamentally misunderstanding this truth about Jesus. Yes, He accepted the sinner. Every single one of them He accepted. And, and how wonderful that is. And, and that's amazing and awesome and needed. He accepted the sinner. Hallelujah, He accepted the sinner. And He still does today. But, 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 He always addressed their sin at the same time. Jesus is always the perfect combination of grace and truth. Love, but also rightly calling out the error and the failing of the soul in the person that he was loving. And it was all out of love. I mean, calling out the sin was itself an act of love. Jesus loved people too much to not talk about their sin and their need for Him to save them from it. He loved them too much to to just be quiet, to be silent, to not say, you've got sin in your life that, that you need to have taken care of, and I'm the only one that can take care of it for you. You need me. I'm here to rescue you from your sin. I love you too much to leave you in your sin. That's why Jesus came, church, right? Amen? That's why God so loved the world, the world of sinners, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish in their sin, but have everlasting life. The most unloving thing imaginable would have been God to just leave us in our sin. The most unimaginably unloving thing that Jesus could ever do with anybody He encountered was to not talk about their sin. And the same is true for us Oh, Christian, please keep this in mind. If we love other people, we will talk about their sin and their need for the Savior to save them from their sin because no one else can. No one else can. Now, it's important how we go about that. Okay, The the how we do that is just as important as doing it. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Unfortunately, there's many examples of people that tell people about their sin in a very unloving, unchristlike way. We don't hit them over the head and, and you know, beat them to a pulp talking about their sin. And when they're down, we kick them while they're down. We make sure we season our, our words with grace. We make sure that that we aren't heavy-handed on judgment. I mean, that's where the, the don't judge is, is applicable. That we're not taking the place of God as the judge of their life because He is ultimately the only judge of their life just as He is ours. So we have to walk that line very carefully. But we can't be afraid of talking about sin in someone's life because if we love them, we will. Just as Jesus did. Alright, with that being said, Let's keep going with this encounter because there's still a lot to glean from this, a lot to learn. Verse 19 is where we are. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Remember, he, he just gave this great, incredible revelation of her life that no one else, that, 
would have been able to do unless they had been around her and he's never seen her, he's never talked to her before this moment. And here he is knowing every intimate detail of her life. She's speechless and then she finally gets her voice back. Verse 19, Sir, the woman replied, I I see that you are a prophet. I mean, you must be to be able to do that, what you just did. Verse 20, Our ancestors, since you're a prophet, you know, that's, that's kind of like inferred there. Since you're a prophet, verse 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Hmm. <laughs> Smells like a diversion, doesn't it? Smells like a diversion. Yeah, absolutely it is. I'm now incredibly uncomfortable by you revealing all this about me that you shouldn't know. I don't know what to say. This is awkward. So I'm going to deal with this awkwardness. I'm going to deal with this uncomfortable situation by diverting the attention off of me. And let's talk about theology a little bit. Let's talk about worship. Let me ask you this question, prophet. (laughs) Jesus wasn't distracted, though, by diversion. Never was. And here's another really important thing to notice in what he says next. It's what we see in, how, in what he responds and how he responds. Jesus was more interested in winning a soul than winning an argument. Jesus was always more interested in winning a soul than he was an argument. And friends, oh, fellow brothers and sisters, we need to follow that example. We need to be more interested in winning a soul than we are in winning an argument and showing how right we are and how wrong the person we're talking to is. Because far too often our default mode is, I want to win, I want to win, I want to win. I want to win this argument. I want to win this debate. I want to show how right I am and how wrong they are. Let's be more interested in the person than proving our point, like Jesus was. And let's not be distracted by diversion. Because every time we talk to somebody about the Lord, guess what? There's going to be a diversion that's thrown up real quick. Well, verse 21, here's here's the response that shows what I just said. Verse 21, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That's important. An hour is coming when you will worship the Father, God the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Real estate may be all about location, 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 right? That's what real estate's all about. Location, location, location. Right, Miranda? All about location. Curbside appeal. That works for real estate, but not worship. Not worship. Worship is about so much more than location or place. It goes so far beyond. I mean, real worship goes far beyond place or setting or environment or atmosphere. That's why we have to be careful that we don't limit our worship of God and our walking with Christ to this building. Because this is simply the house of the church. This is where the church of Christ, the temple of the living God that is the individual believer, that's where we gather is here. This should not define our worship, though. It goes far beyond this. And that's what Jesus was pointing out to this woman. Verse 22, he continues, You Samaritans worship what you do not know because of their mixed, mingled, compromised religion, like I said at the very beginning, because they weren't devoted to the one true God. 
So he's saying you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Not because they are some superior culture, but because that's what Jesus is. Jesus came through the Jewish people. Jesus was and is a Jew. That's why salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here, because Jesus was now there. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, or that's, that's through, by the Holy Spirit, and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit, by the Spirit, and in truth. So what that tells us is, worship is not about location, rather it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. And we need to remember that every time we come through these doors together. What has the heart of our worship been like all week long, and including the five minutes before we stepped in the door? As we're on our way to worship, quote, quote, and we're quarreling and fighting and arguing using harsh words with our family along the way. Or as soon as we come in the door and someone says something to us that we don't like, and, and while we may not say something in response, our heart is full of bitterness at that moment. What is the heart of our worship? That's what we need to constantly ask ourselves. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Get ready for another bomb drop. Verse 26, Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, the one that no one else would want to speak to, the one everyone tries to get away from speaking to, the one that everyone speaks about but not to, I, the one speaking to you, am He. I am He, Jesus said. Wow, bomb drop. And what this woman, as a result of the whole conversation, the revelation about her own heart, her own life, and now the revelation about the one speaking to her is the one that she recognizes will come. And, and by, by saying what she did about knowing He's going to come, that shows us that she's in her own way looking for Him waiting for Him. And so that revelation, all of this encounter, this whole conversation that she's had with Jesus up to this point, it's showing, proving something, and she's the example for all of us of it, and that's this. Everyone is a sinful mess. But Jesus can turn any mess into a masterpiece. Isn't that great news? Everyone's a sinful mess. We all are. We're all a mess. But Jesus, Jesus can turn any mess into a masterpiece. Just like the trash art that we started the message by looking at. Just like that. Verse 27. Just then His disciples arrived and they were amazed that He was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28 then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and 
told the people, all the people that she was trying to avoid, now it doesn't matter. Now it doesn't matter because she's changed. She's met the one who's changed her story. He's changed everything about her. And now she's not thinking about her water. The reason she came to the well, that doesn't matter anymore because she now has the living water. She's not so preoccupied with the jug. So she leaves it. She goes into town. She tells the people all that has happened. And these actions, those actions right there, leaving the water jar, going into town, telling the people, that shows us that this encounter with Christ changed her life. It was a a picture of true conversion. And, by the way, it's the essence of the Great Commission that every follower of Christ has, all of us. We're all called, when we come to Christ, to leave our former life behind. We're called to go where the people are, and we're called to tell them about the difference that Christ made in our life. That's what we see on display right here. Verse 29, here's what she said to the people. Come, see. Here's that theme again in all these encounters we've looked at so far. That's the theme. Come and see. Come and see Jesus for yourself. Experience Him for yourself. Encounter Him for yourself, because everybody has to encounter Jesus personally. Come, see, a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? In verse 30, they left the town and made their way to him. Isn't that just beautiful? She, the outcast, she, the rejected one, goes into town, tells them about her encounter with Jesus. They come to go make their way to Jesus themselves. And that shows us something else shows us that Jesus can rewrite anyone's story. Jesus can rewrite anyone's story. He rewrote her story. He's going to rewrite their story. Jesus is an amazing author, isn't he, friends? No matter how dark our life story may be, He can rewrite it and make it beautiful. Praise God. All right, verse 39. We're going to finish up this passage and this encounter. But it's a new encounter. It's a group encounter. Verse 39, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. And we could insert, but He still loved me. And He he offered me rescue. He told me everything I did. But He didn't just stop with with calling that out. He didn't just judge me right there. He also showed me love. And he, he, He offered me rescue. That's why it's so important that we tell others about our own Christ encounter. Because friends, every salvation story is an amazing story. It doesn't matter if you were saved when you were 5 or 50. It doesn't matter. Every salvation story is an amazing story of the miraculous. So we've got to tell others about it. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And verse 42, they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. That's how it started. That's how they they started coming to Christ was because of what she said. But they said, we no longer believe because of what you said since We have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Amen. The last little uh, golden nugget of truth that this leaves us with, I want to leave you with, and it's perhaps the most important thing of all of this, 
No one can come to Christ for someone else. No one can come to Christ for someone else. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He just doesn't. He only has children. And no one can live a life in Christ vicariously through someone else. So, tell others about your own Christ encounter, but make sure you follow the pattern of those who had their encounters with Christ and say to them, come and see. You've heard from me, now come and see the one I'm, I'm telling you about. Come and see for yourself. So vital we get that right. What an encounter this was, right? What an encounter. Praise God. Praise Jesus. That He meets sinners where they are. That He shows them Himself. And He doesn't leave them in their sin. Amen? Let's pray. And we'll close out our time together today. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this woman at the well and her incredible example Thank you for what she showed us about your heart, about the heart of your Son. Thank you for, Lord Jesus, for always being that perfect combination of grace and truth, of mercy and love, but also of calling out sin, calling out weakness. Not just so that we can feel bad, not to make someone feel bad, but so that you can point them to yourself as the remedy, as the answer. Help us to follow that example. To love people enough to tell them about their sin and their need for You, Jesus, to save them from it. And help us, those of us who are Yours, to keep drawing from Your limitless supply of nourishment and satisfaction. Help us to not look for other sources of water that will just leave us thirsty. Thank You for making everything available to us that we need. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.